When lockdown came, before hunkering at home, Americans rushed out. They stripped supermarket shelves of hand sanitizer, tin food, and loo roll. They also bought guns, lots of them. The FBI made 3.7 million background checks in March, the most in a single month since checks became mandatory in 1998. You don't tool up if you're optimistic the government has things under control. Not for the first time, a fog of gloom shrouds the city on a hill. With 185 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, are warnings of American decline justified? The pandemic has been grim for fans of US leadership in the world. The country that defeated totalitarianism and put a man on the moon has been hit hardest by coronavirus. China is sending medical supplies to American states, while the president brainstorms bizarre cures on live TV. Is America ceding global leadership to China? Maybe. What's certain is that predicting the imminent decline of the republic and preparing for it is a long-standing American tradition. In this episode, we'll find out which president invented modern declinism and hear from someone who spent years preparing for societal breakdown only for those plans to go horribly wrong. As ever, I'm joined by Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and by John Fasman, the Washington correspondent. John Fasman, happy birthday. Happy birthday to you too, John, and to Charlotte. Thank you very much. Charlotte, happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. Sounds like the beginning of a weird skit. I read in Politico that it was John Fasman's birthday earlier this week, uh, which is about the most DC thing you can possibly have. It's right up there with the <laughs> president's run before a Nats game or or a sort of fancy brunch at Le Diplomat. To have your birthday noted in Politico with an interview is, you know, a kind of DC ritual. So we were teasing John gently about this, Charlotte and I, and it turned out that Charlotte's birthday was the following day, which is also my birthday. So Charlotte and I share a birthday. Three hosts, two days, seven years. Exactly. You got it. Okay, enough birthday excitement. Let's get down to the serious business of superpower competition. To kick off this week, I wanted to hear from Gadi Epstein. He's The Economist's China Affairs Editor. He's been writing about how Beijing has made the most of America's retreat from global leadership during the pandemic. Well, a moment that really struck me when I was reporting on China's response to COVID-19 was in early April, when in the matter of a couple days, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, and Charlie Baker, the governor of Massachusetts, each thanked Chinese officials for facilitating the delivery of ventilators and PPE to their states at the same time as the federal government was seizing deliveries of PPE around the country, including in their states, much to their consternation. And so you had this contrast. Governors of states who had been battling with Washington over getting PPE, literally thanking officials of the Chinese government for helping get them the PPE that they need. The contrast there was striking. And I think it's one of the reasons that you see some people suggesting that China could win in this moment. 
At the same time, there's also been some pushback in some countries at what's perceived as Chinese diplomatic overreach. The case in France was quite interesting. Chinese officials insisting on delegations welcoming deliveries of PPE to France, and, and there have been other cases elsewhere. So do you think there's a certain amount of kind of overreaching going on as well? Absolutely. And you have this case just recently in Australia. The Australian government is interested in pursuing an independent investigation of the origins of COVID-19 or how the pandemic has developed. And the response officially from China is to sort of imply that there could be economic repercussions for that. And that's the sort of thing that provokes quite a backlash. And it would be a mistake to think that China winning in this moment means that they are winning in a war of public opinion. Anti-Chinese sentiment is, is on the rise in a number of democracies especially. But it's about winning in a much more sort of geopolitical, pragmatic sense. How much of what's going on now, the debate in America, is really a debate about China? And how much of it is really America arguing with itself? So that's the $64,000 question. I think China would not be able to exploit this moment so well without Trump's withdrawal from global leadership, inattention to and disdain for multilateral institutions. And the symbolic response in America to the epidemic has only fed into the view that there is potentially an alternative in China. And I think one of the things is the uh, propaganda sort of writes itself for China at times. On WeChat in recent days, you've had a video going around with Chinese subtitles that's just images and dialogue of U.S. citizens at protests around the country, protesting the lockdown, downplaying the threat of the virus, echoing language that Donald Trump has used, and just looking silly. And it's the way that people in China are viewing America right now. And that tells you a lot about this moment, about why China at least sees itself as having an opportunity here. John Fasman, let's start with you. We had a cover on The Economist recently posing the question, is China winning? What do you make of the China story? I think China certainly sees an opportunity here with American leadership in decline to sort of advance its own interests. It's hard to say what those interests are beyond projecting sort of power and supremacy abroad for the benefit of its own people, which ensures sort of stability and satisfaction at home. I think on the broader question of American decline, though, we should distinguish between a few different types of decline. One is relative decline. And in that sense, I think American relative decline over the past couple of decades is inevitable just because it began as, if we sort of look at the end of the Cold War, it was the single unquestioned power for so long that an element of decline was inevitable and not necessarily a bad thing. I think on the broader question of whether it is in secular decline, our former colleague Gideon Rackman wrote a column in the FT that I thought asked a couple of really good questions. Number one is, which currency does the world want to hold? And number two is, where does the world want to send its children to be educated? And the answer to both those questions is, on the first one is the dollar, and the second is the United States. So I think America remains a sort of preeminent world power. It is just going through a, an odd and lamentable period where it has seen fit to sort of withdraw from the world. And China has spied an advantage and has sort of stolen a march there. Charlotte, and it's not just China that's filling the vacuum here. There have been various tech billionaires who've been stepping in um, while the federal government has been AWOL. 
Yes, but it's not just in the context of COVID. I mean, there are some really big international challenges where American leadership has recently been absent, particularly on climate change. And China, you see, despite being such a huge polluter, making big investments in supporting EVs, solar and wind. And businesses, American businessmen, have stepped in to try to claim the mantle of American leadership. And this, again, this began before COVID. You think about Davos, and Davos is the global stage, sort of the business version of the UN General Assembly, where you see different people, whether it's Mark Benioff of Salesforce or Jamie Dimon of JP Morgan, these business leaders taking the stage and discussing big global issues. In the current crisis, it's been very notable to see Bill Gates and his role in the debate. So the Gates Foundation for over a decade has really been filling this role on the global health stage of supporting the fight against HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis, malaria, maternal health. And the increase in funding has been to such an extent that the Gates Foundation, which is, of course, independent of any government, has really helped set the agenda for global health. And this is both a good thing for global health and also fundamentally undemocratic. And you saw this bubble up in the current crisis where Bill Gates is giving $250 million to help slow the pandemic. In our pages in The Economist, he wrote about what we're learning from this pandemic. And at the same time, you've seen this proliferation of conspiracy theories about him in particular on the right, that he created COVID-19, that he wants to profit from the vaccine. He's become a punching bag for the president. So you see this tension between America's actual democratically elected leader, Donald Trump, and the business community more broadly, which is trying to fill the void on the international stage. John Fasman, obviously, these are dark times for America. I mean, just look at the economic data, which is awful at the moment. America has more fatalities from COVID-19 than any other country in the world. But do you sense a sort of general mood of declinism in the country? I think that the virus is always going to be tough for America, just as it has been tough for other countries, I think what it has revealed that America needs to pay attention to is the lack of trust. The countries that have done well in combating the virus, I'm thinking particularly of Germany and South Korea, have extremely high levels of social trust, and America doesn't. And the next administration, whether it is Donald Trump back for a second term or Joe Biden, really needs to figure out how to start fixing that. I think Donald Trump's habit of pitting Americans against each other and of sort of thinking of himself as the president for his own base hasn't been helpful, but it is fixable. It won't happen overnight, but Americans' mistrust of each other shouldn't be given any more time to fester. Okay, thanks, guys. In a moment, we'll go down another historical rabbit hole. But first, a reminder for our listeners. If you don't have a subscription to The Economist yet, now is the time to fix that. This week's issue is packed with mind fuel. The piece that generated the most heat in our editorial meeting is about how soon schools should reopen. All The Economist's coverage of the pandemic is available at economist.com slash coronavirus. To receive 12 issues for $12 or £12, head to economist.com slash pod2020. The links are, as always, in the show notes for this episode. There's a rich tradition of declinism in modern American politics. But where does it come from? On the 4th of October 1957, 
the USSR became the world's first space power. Less than 23 inches across, the Sputnik satellite could fit in a kid's backpack. But it had an outsized impact on the American psyche. Commentators at the time compared the shock to Pearl Harbor. They lamented an America that had grown soft and complacent. The US seemed vulnerable in the late 50s, hit by the worst recession to interrupt the long boom from the Second World War to the 1970s. The Soviet Union was at its apogee. Nikita Khrushchev had denounced Stalinism in 1956. New freedoms allowed science to flourish. Rocketry, of course, but also computing. A military researcher called Anatoly Kitov was the first person to design a civilian computer network, a prototype internet. Sputnik's batteries ran out after three weeks, but its legacy tormented America for much longer. A top-secret report for President Eisenhower, the Geithner Report, warned that economic growth in the USSR was outstripping America. By 1980, the report said, Soviet military spending could be double that of the US. The junior senator from Massachusetts spied an opportunity amid the anxiety. John F. Kennedy began to attack Eisenhower for presiding over a missile gap with the Soviets. That gap never really existed, but the story of a proud nation derailed from destiny by poor leadership was irresistible. Kennedy was aided by Khrushchev, who became the first Soviet leader to visit America in 1959. He cheekily presented Eisenhower with a replica of a ball the Russians had just shot to the moon. On a return visit to Moscow, Vice President Richard Nixon was filmed in an odd series of debates with Khrushchev. There are some instances where you may be ahead of us. Even he acknowledged the Soviets' technological edge. ...of the thrust of your rockets for the investigation of outer space. There may be some instances, for example, color television, where we're ahead of you. When Kennedy hit the campaign trail the next year, he sketched a gloomy picture of America's standing in the world. Maybe our high noon has passed the young senator said. Maybe our brightest days were earlier, and now we're going into the long, slow afternoon. For most of the 20th century, they admired American science and American education, which was second to none. The people of the world, Kennedy said, were no longer assured of US leadership. They wonder why Russia is turning out twice as many scientists and engineers as we are, and they are entitled to an answer. The Soviet threat evaporated eventually, but Kennedy's narrative of decline had served its purpose. He won the White House and kick-started a rich political tradition. And this country will move again. Charlotte, declinism and fear of decline is a really old theme in American politics. I mean, you go right back to some of the first presidential elections and you can see candidates rhetorically worrying about throwing away the legacy of their forebears and the republic going to ruin. In the more modern era, we had a quick look through the Economist archive and found articles about American decline under at least four former presidents, JFK around the Bay of Pigs, Jimmy Carter with the Iran hostage crisis, George Bush Sr. when Japanese firms seemed to be gobbling up all of America, and Barack Obama during the financial crisis. 
sometimes that obsession with declinism sort of prompts a healthy reaction, and sometimes it doesn't. How optimistic are you feeling that this bout might lead somewhere useful? Well, as you say, this is something that has been a mainstay of American politics for a long time. Dickens, Charles Dickens, said of the United States that if its citizens were to be believed, America is, quote, always depressed, always is stagnated, and always is at an alarming crisis, and never was otherwise. But you're right that a feeling of declinism absolutely does shape politics and real action. So Donald Trump, really, it was formed by what he experienced as a dramatic and traumatic expansion of Japanese power in the 1980s. And in 1987, Donald Trump was placing full-page newspaper ads in New York papers saying that Japan and other nations are taking advantage of the United States. It was a letter that was addressed to the American people with his signature at the bottom. And they demanded these advertisements that we should tax these wealthy nations and end our deficits and said, let's not let our great country be laughed at anymore. Anyone who followed the 2016 election would recall those words that he would always say that other countries are laughing at the United States. One of the things I found most striking about his rhetoric then was that I was taught that in order to win an American presidential election, you had to basically sound like Ronald Reagan in 1980 and say it was morning in America and project an optimistic image of America's future. And Donald Trump, of course, in 2016 didn't do that at all. He literally said that America is a hellhole and it's going down fast. That is not the kind of rhetoric that typically would have been successful for a presidential candidate. However, in a sense, he was tapping into this really old tradition of American declinism that people who've been running as opposition candidates have made use of time and time again. Kennedy, perhaps in a slightly different register, but this goes way back. That is true, but you have to remember that non-incumbent presidential candidates always run against the status quo. And the undercurrent of Barack Obama's 2008 campaign was, we're in trouble, the way things are going now isn't good, and we will make it better by looking ahead. Now, Trump sort of turned that on his head and said, make America great again, with the implication that we have to sort of go back to the way things were. Implicit in any non-incumbent presidential candidate's pitch is the idea that the way things are going now in America is not good and not sustainable, and you need me to fix them. They are always running against the present. It's worth pointing out that when there have been deep and long economic crises, as Robert Kagan has pointed out in essays, America often has come back stronger. So after the 1890s, the 1930s, the 1970s, the decades following each of those crises were periods of American resurgence with global power and influence rising. So I think the question this time around is what will happen, of course, in the coming months, coming year, but then also in the decade after. Okay, Charlotte, if we're interested in measuring decline and working out whether it's a real thing or whether it's just this age-old tradition of America sort of freaking out, what are the objective criteria you'd use? What are the yardsticks? Well, I'll have Fasman weigh in on this too, but you could look at the dollar. So as the pandemic picked up, There was a strong depreciation of the U.S. dollar that was followed by a quick rebound, actually, through the middle of March. And by the end of March, it had come down a bit and leveled off. But the dollar today is a relatively stronger currency than it was in the months leading up to the pandemic. The U.S. dollar share of global currency reserves has been falling, but it still is the largest currency held abroad at about six and a half trillion dollars. If you look at GDP, China seems to have overtaken the U.S. in around 2014 when you consider purchasing power parity, but America still has relatively greater GDP per capita. 
there's debate about what's the most important metric to look at. So uh, Michael Beckley of Tufts says it's more important to look at net resources versus gross resources. That is, how much is required to produce this GDP growth. And by this measure, America is still miles ahead of China. The other metric we can look at is education. The number of Chinese students at American universities over the past decade has tripled, and they comprise the largest percentage of the U.S. international student population. I would think that if America really were in decline, you'd see a flood of American students rushing to study in China. Instead, you've seen the opposite. You've also seen, if you look at the number of, of Nobel Prizes that countries have, have, have garnered, America has by far the largest number in chemistry, physics, and medicine. We have 269, and China has only five total. So, John, Xi Jinping famously sent his daughter to Harvard. You're saying that the moment when President Don Trump Jr. sends his child to study in Beijing, that'll be the time to really worry about America's prospects. Exactly. One thing we haven't talked about is defense spending. Charlotte, give us a comparison between America and China there. America's still very obviously the giant on the international stage, in 2019, Chinese defense spending was $719 billion, which is a very large sum, but it's still less than 40% the defense spending of America. America has 19 aircraft carriers. The rest of the world's countries combined have 12. Of those, China has two. So America's still the giant. I mean, there is this question of how other countries view America's reliability. And in that, there was a poll that looked at 33 countries Generally, countries, but for a few, have much more favorable views of the U.S. than China. But there's a lot of skepticism in particular about Donald Trump. In France, for instance, people trust neither Xi Jinping nor Trump to do the right thing on global affairs. But if you had to choose one, more French people choose Xi Jinping, which is pretty striking. The same is true in Sweden, Germany, Spain, and even the U.K., so that gives you a sense of the way the rest of the world views America at the moment. Okay, thank you both. Questions about American decline are not limited to the realm of foreign affairs. Some Americans have spent years preparing for the fabric of society to unravel at home. We'll hear from one of those in just a moment. Anticipating disaster is something many Americans take very seriously. John Fasman, you've reported on preppers before. How are they dealing with the COVID crisis? Yeah, late last year, I went to a preppers conference in northern Idaho. And what struck me about that conference is how many people had a sort of grim eagerness about social unraveling and being ready for it when others weren't. The most thoughtful person I talked to in reporting, though, was completely unlike that. His name is Bronson Griscom. He's probably not who you have in mind when you imagine a prepper. He, in fact, describes himself as a JV prepper. I'm not really sure what first inspired my prepping, but I think, I think on reflection, it was an itch that kind of grew in the back of my mind some years ago, pretty soon after we had three young girls. He started out with the basics. In the same way that it's a good idea to take out home insurance because there is a minor chance of disaster, but that disaster would be catastrophic, it's a good idea to stock up on rice and beans and grow vegetables and store drinking waters and learn how to hunt. I'm a biologist. A basic lesson of biology and ecology is that all populations go up and down. Humans are no exception. Complex civilizations protect us, but civilizations also collapse, and they do so unexpectedly. Why wouldn't we all do at least some prepping? 
I talked to him two days ago about what his life has been like since the lockdown started. In early March, um, when we had early news about the coronavirus in China, but I think few considered it much of a threat to the U.S., I kind of panicked. I went out on a food shopping binge, um, and I convinced my wife and three young kids and father-in-law to um, make a beeline for our cabin in West Virginia. So there we were um, attempting, I guess, the homesteader's dream. At first, it was kind of idyllic. Our kids were running around through, you know, sun-dappled forest, playing in this babbling brook. We are all cozy with our stored food. My father-in-law was sleeping in his teardrop camper with his two large dogs who really wanted to eat our cat. And meanwhile, we'd set up a new satellite internet system so that we had internet, which was really the lifeline for us because both my wife and I had to be online to function in our jobs. The catch was that it wasn't working well. There was a tree kind of in the way of the line of sight for this internet dish. So in another bit of a panic, I got up my chainsaw and I felled this tree, which was near the house. And I felled it onto my father-in-law's car. Not good. So amidst the trauma that kind of ensued from that idiotic move on my part, we all agreed that my father-in-law and his dog should move into the cabin. The cat had a series of near-death experiences and began to pee on our duvet cover and kind of all over the house. A cold rain set in, and this cabin became like a stinking, crowded, muddy, barking, scratching prison camp as we attempted to like do lots of Zoom meetings and homeschool the kids and et cetera. Needless to say, I shelved any plans I might have had to get out my rifle and shoot a deer and stock up on meat. Mortal implements uh, in my hands no longer seem like a good idea. Now, for the record, the internet connection did improve but not enough. And you know, we decided it was time to cut our losses. And so we returned back to Harrisonburg. You know, if we'd accomplished anything, we'd accomplished sort of a, a joyous reunion with our house. And one of the things I was shocked about was to realize how important a sense of community was to us, even in this process, even while we were sort of a community practicing social distancing. So here we are, back in Harrisonburg, North sort of Norman Rockwell neighborhood. And as the Italians are singing their national anthem from their balconies, we now have a ritual in our neighborhood of howling to the setting sun with all of our neighbors from our front porches. And we are actually doing just fine. A global pandemic is not what I would have guessed would be our first major global crisis of this century. What I had anticipated is a global food shortage. In any case, um, regardless of being wrong about kind of what we, what we struggle with, I think that some of the prepping I've done is now making a bit more sense to my wife, who is, let's just say, a little bit more rational than me. I think, I think actually it's putting a lot of us into more common ground. <laughs> let's hope, right, that this pandemic could bring us all together. Well, Charlotte, I'm now feeling a lot better about my rubbish prepping and, and lack of foresight. It turns out that prepping can be a dangerous occupation. 
Yes, thankfully, those of us wielding a chainsaw at the moment are small in number. But I think there is this broader concern that even as some of the efforts to contain COVID seem to be successful, that there's still other challenges. So for instance, last week, Adam Roberts spoke about outbreaks in America's meatpacking plants, and there have been disruptions to the food supply chain. I think it's still unclear whether there may be more unrest or more disruptions that Americans aren't particularly well prepared for. John, how typical is Brunson of preppers? Because when you say prepper to me, I think about some of the people you reported on hiding out in deepest, darkest Montana with their own fish ponds and their own electricity supplies and so forth entirely off the grid. He doesn't sound like your typical prepper. I think he's a lot more typical than people think. There are a lot of people who sort of have the same outlook on the world that he does, which is probably everything will be okay. It may not. And to the extent that I can mitigate the worst of the it may not possibility, why not do it? I have been writing out the lockdown at my my wife's parents' house. My wife's father was a journalist and was also a sort of mild prepper and got me into doing the same thing. I think it's just a good idea to have a couple of weeks worth of food laid up and to have a large supply of dried goods and to have some drinking water jugs and to do that sort of thing not because you sort of gleefully anticipate using it, you hope you never use it, right? But because it's a better idea to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. Charlotte, John is both an optimist and mild prepper, which is something I didn't know until we recorded this show. There are optimistic preppers, clearly. There are more pessimistic preppers who fear the imminent collapse of American civilization and have lots of guns about We've talked already about how optimism about America's future is conditioned by partisanship. So when there's a Republican in the White House, Democrats tend to be pessimistic and and vice versa. But can you break polling on optimism down for us a little bit more? It's more fine-grained, isn't it, than just, well, you know, Republicans think this, Democrats think that, and it flips every four years or every eight years. Generally, it seems to be that white people are less optimistic than our racial minorities, and women are less optimistic than men, and the upper class is less optimistic than the working class. So it's kind of interesting how it breaks down along demographic lines. John, let's take this back to 2020 and the election in November. Is pessimism a viable campaign platform for Joe Biden? I mean, presumably it's not for President Trump in that you can't really run as the incumbent and be very pessimistic about the country because it doesn't reflect well on you. But do you think former Vice President Biden could really turn up the pessimism in November or would he be ill-advised to do so? Well, I don't think he really needs to turn up the pessimism. If we have an America with unemployment levels that are sort of that of the Great Depression and a couple hundred thousand of us have died, I think that he just has to say, look, things have to get better. And here's how I'm going to make them better. I think Donald Trump may have painted himself into a bit of a corner with the slogan, keep America great, if America looks the way it does now in November. So let's wrap this up by trying to answer the question we posed at the start of this episode. John, you first. Is the current bout of pessimism about America from some quarters justified? Well, as you pointed out, I tend to be optimistic. It is true that America is going through an awful period right now. The pain of this pandemic has been made worse by an incompetent federal response. But the fact that we are acknowledging it means that it is fixable. And it is fixable over the, maybe not in the short term, but it's fixable in the medium and the long term. I would not bet against America. I have to say I agree with a lot of that. Like you, I'm temperamentally inclined towards 
optimism. And then there's just such a long history in America of these sort of bouts of declinism. I mean, you think back to Robert Bork in 1996 and his book Slouching Towards Gomorrah, which was about how American decline began in the 1960s and was reaching a peak in the mid-1990s, which is an era we now look back on as a sort of golden era. Think about the 2016 election when Michael Anton wrote that piece about the Flight 93 election, how America was on a sort of crash course and you know the only thing to do was to go and seize the controls of the aeroplane, which I think was the single worst opinion piece of the 2016 cycle, which is quite an accomplishment. There's a lot of this about, and I also think as regards China, relative decline is all but inevitable, as we pointed out earlier. I mean, China has a population of 1.4 billion. Something would have to be going really wrong in China for its economy not to be bigger than America's. But that's a very different thing from a real decline. And as far as leadership in the world goes, as David Rennie, our Chaguan columnist, sometimes points out, you know, China doesn't really have an ambition to be the world leader in, in the way that America has since 1945. It, it just wants a world where countries are allowed to kind of get on and look after their own business, a kind of China first view of the world, if you like. Charlotte, last word for you. Um, is this bout of gloom and doomsaying at the moment justified? It's hard for me to counter with a sweeping answer such as yours. I think I would just say that it is correct that America faces both acute short-term problems and acute long-term problems, whether it's income inequality, a lack of social mobility, an inability to date to deal with an existential challenge of climate change. So I don't want to discount any of those. But I think this is a crucial election. We talk about different elections being important. And it will be very interesting to see what the mandate is from the American electorate for the next four years. Okay, well, we've covered a lot of ground there. And I'm sure we'll be returning to some of these things in future episodes. Charlotte, John, before you go, I have a quiz for you. This week's jewel from The Economist's archive is from April 1961. The paper endorsed John F. Kennedy's inclination at that point to concede supremacy in manned spaceflight to the Soviets. There was good sense, The Economist said, in Mr. Kennedy's suggestion that the US might concentrate in other fields where it has a better chance of being first and where the money, which would otherwise be burned up in space, would produce greater benefits for mankind. Which particular technology did The Economist and Kennedy have in mind? Personal computing? This is just a very difficult question. I think of these quizzes as sort of jeopardy for sadists. Um, I think <laughs> maybe some kind of something healthcare related, like some magic vaccine. I think you're you're closer. It was water desalination. That's not remotely closer. We're both just extremely wrong. <laughs> the first desalination plant opened in Freeport, Texas, later that year. Kennedy said desalination was more important than any other scientific enterprise. LBJ, a great Texan, saw clean water as a cause that could unite the free world, but the technology was too energy intensive to sustain federal backing once the oil crisis hit. Which country is home to the world's largest desalination plant today? Israel. Israel. Close. Saudi Arabia. Oh, ah! I should have known that. I should have known that. They do have huge desalination there. 
Thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Thanks, John. Thank you. That's all from us. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give us a review and a rating. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. <laughs>